Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the AGD podcast series. I'm Dr. Wes Blakesley, and I'll be your host today. Our topic is influence and persuasion. So I'm going to start with a question. Do people really know what influences them to make their decisions? What do you think they would say if you asked them this question? I'll bet they couldn't answer it. The principles of influence and persuasion are a well-studied area of behavioral economics, a hybrid science of economics and psychology, and the subject of the classic text, Influenced, by Dr. Robert Cialdini. Today, we're going to discuss influence and persuasion as it relates to dentistry with Dr. Chris Phelps, a general dentist, entrepreneur, best-selling Amazon author, and a Cialdini Method certified trainer. Also, one of the brightest minds in dentistry. I've known Chris for a while. Uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Wes. Appreciate you having me on. I waited a long time for this. Uh, you know, when I met you, I don't know, four or five years ago at an SCN meeting, we talked a lot about Dr. Cialdini, about the book Influence, which I have right here. I've had it probably since it was released in the mid-'80s, and, uh, and how it relates to dentistry. So I'm just going to take a dive in here. Uh, you know, I mentioned that you're a Cialdini Method Certified Trainer, or a CMCT. Tell us about uh, Professor Cialdini and what that certification means. Yeah, well, you know, Dr. Cialdini kind of got his expertise by, by doing his research, studying what the best of the best used to influence us to say yes to their request, whatever those requests are. And what he was looking for were kind of patterns among those that were the most successful at doing that. Um, and, and to see did some certain things stand out. Was there a pattern to it? Was there a method to their madness, whether they actually realized it or not? And he realized there were six key things these people kept tapping into. Uh, and that's what he decided to do his research on and write that book on. Uh, even though it's been, like you said, it was released in the 80s, you know, it's still highly relevant to this day. And in fact, I would argue that it's even more relevant to really describe what people are using and tapping into to make the majority of their decisions especially the busier and more distracted we get by things, the more we kind of lean on these principles. So I, was, I had the fortune of hearing Dr. Cialdini speak for the first time uh, after I'd done something a little nutty. I'd sold uh, my two best offices that I'd built up of the four that I had, highest producing, least debt practices, and I took over the two worst producing ones. <laughs> so the highest the debt, least producing ones. Uh, one of which was uh, costing me, uh, it was, you know, bringing in 35000 in revenue, but costing me 70000 a month in expense going out the door. So again, you have to be a math major to, to realize that's not a good check to write every month. But I knew there were problems with those two practices, but I couldn't put my finger on it until I heard Dr. Charlie speak on these six principles. And there were one of them in particular that stood out to me as the root source of the problem that I was having behavior-wise with my patients, with my team, and with my associate doctors. And so, you know, as they say, when the student is ready, the master will appear. So when I heard him speak, I thought, this guy is, knows what he's talking about. That's the answer. I got to go learn from this guy. And I bet if I can understand the why behind my problems, I can actually do something about them. And so I was fortunate enough to go out to Arizona. He's a professor emeritus of psychology and marketing at Arizona State University. And I took a two-day, you know, generic persuasion course that they offer once a year out there in July in Phoenix, Arizona. So the hottest time of the year. And got to meet him and, and hear his team talk about his, his research and his principles. And it just gave me a thousand ideas on how to apply these things to our dental practice setting. And uh, I found out about their certification program and applied. And even though thousands apply every year, they only take one or two every few years. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I got chosen and got to study under him for over a year. And it all led to the penultimate uh, final test, if you will, where I had to 
present uh, the part of that two-day workshop that I went through back to Dr. Cialdini himself. <laughs> so, right, no pressure, right? Imagine singing karaoke uh, back to the original artist and you're graded on how well you sing their song. <laughs> That's pretty much what it felt like for me, so. Well, but let's talk about it. Let's enumerate uh, those six principles of uh, persuasion and, uh, and then we'll go down and uh, we'll uh, expand those. Yeah, so of course, the, the first one we'd like to talk about is reciprocity. It's a principle, it's biblical, right? it's as old as time. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, and reciprocity is all about uh, giving, okay? If uh, you give a, someone a gift of value, of significance to them, uh, society has kind of taught us there's this obligation that's created where we feel the need to give back in kind. And if you think about this, uh, try to picture the opposite of reciprocity. Like, are there any positive words in the English language to describe people who just take, take, take and never give back? And I think we would all agree there aren't any good words to describe those kind of people, right? Takers, moochers, uh, free freeloaders, bloodsuckers, <laughs> right? And nobody wants to be associated with those terms. So this obligation is created if someone has given us something of value that we appreciate, we feel the need to give back in that moment, so to speak. Uh, liking is a really good one. Uh, you know, Dale Carnegie wrote a whole book uh, on this principle about building rapport with people. But in essence, it hits on this whole liking principle. And it's all about we like to do business with people we like. It's all about friendships, relationships. And if it's a friend asking, it's hard to say no, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, we like those who are like us, who have similarities to us, commonalities, um, favorite sports teams, etc. Uh, we like those who like us and tell us or show us that they like us. You know, we love praise. We love compliments. We love people to tell us that they like us or show us that they like us. And we like those who work with us, who cooperate with us as well. Um, you've got social proof, uh, which right now is extremely popular and probably one of the most powerful of the principles when it comes to influence today. Uh, and the first principle that comes to mind or, you know, with social proof or consensus, as we call it, is Facebook, right? It's all about the evidence what others are doing is likely to influence what you're going to do. And social proof consensus kind of comes evolutionarily from this, this idea that our brain, our brain perceives danger if the crowd is doing something and we're not, or at least a potential danger. So it kind of wakes the brain up to that behavior. So if you were walking up to a building for the first time and 50 people go running out of that building in the opposite direction from where you're coming from, screaming and running in terror, what do you think you're likely to do? Are you likely to go into the building and find out what they're running and screaming from? Or are you more likely to turn tail and run with the crowd? And then when you get there, try to figure out what are we running from? What's going on? And I think most of us would agree, we probably run with the crowd, uh, not against it, so to speak. But again, our brain can't tell the difference between this true potential threat versus an actual threat. So it's just uber aware of what's going on around us. And when the crowd is doing something, maybe we should too. So we look to others to sometimes to tell us or show us what we should do. Uh, you've got the authority principle, okay? Which means many times we look to credible experts to tell us what we should do. You know, we don't truthfully have time to be an expert in everything. Doesn't mean we don't have the, the capacity or the desire to learn how to have knowledge or experience in a certain area, but truthfully, we don't have the time to be an expert in everything. So we look to credible, trustworthy experts to tell us what we should do because of that. Uh, you know, if a plumber comes to my house and tells me I need a new toilet, well, you know what? I realized early on that I know how to fix teeth and that's about it. <laughs> Otherwise, I got a guy for that. So I don't know how to fix a toilet. I don't have any expertise in that arena whatsoever. So I'm going to have to trust their judgment. And if they say I need a new toilet, then I'm buying a new toilet, right? So we looked at credible, trustworthy experts to tell us what we should do. 
consistency is our fifth principle. And this was the one that was kind of my light bulb, okay? My aha moment. So when you hear consistency, I want you to think about commitments because this is a commitment principle. And what it states is if you get people to make a real commitment, take a stand on an issue, put skin in the game, right? Money, if you will, a down payment, what have you. But if you can get a real commitment out of them, there's a lot of external and internal pressure on them to stay consistent and follow through and do what they said they were gonna do. So do the behavior that they said they would. Now we know this one is true, again, when you think about the opposite of the word consistent. What do we call people who are inconsistent and don't do what they said they were gonna do? Do we have any positive words for those people, right? Uh, a big one we call them that we want to avoid is they're liars. That's what we call people who don't do what they say they're going to do. And so the external pressure is we don't want others in society to view our actions as being inconsistent like we're lying. And at the same time, the internal pressure is we don't want to view ourselves and our actions, our values, our beliefs as being inconsistent. Okay, so we don't want to be lying to ourselves, so to speak. So this one is a powerful principle. If you get people to make a commitment, they usually fall through and do what they said they're going to do. So this one stood out to me now. It totally made sense. Why were my patients not paying their bill when they said they would, when they knew what the cost was? Why weren't they referring somebody to the practice when they said they would? Why weren't they doing that review when they said they would? Why didn't they show up for their appointment when they said they would? Why didn't they call me back to schedule treatment when they said they would? And it was in that moment when I heard Dr. Cialdini speak on this that I realized that was it. It was because I wasn't getting a real commitment out of them to do these things. And people don't do what they don't commit to. So once I decided to change my strategies and get more commitments out of people, everything changed at my practices. And we had a phenomenal amount of growth as a result. And of course, our last principle is scarcity, which is probably the most familiar one to people. Uh, it's probably the one used the most in an unethical way against us. But true scarcity is about resources. And if resources around us are dwindling, about to run out or have run out, suddenly it's a powerful motivator for us to take action and do something about it and get more of those resources. So picture, you know, Wes, where you're at right now, if the oxygen in, that, in your room was about to disappear and you're about to have no oxygen, would you prefer to learn this knowledge that the air was running out when it actually happens and you're out of air? Or would you like to know that before it actually happens? I'll vote for before. Right. And because what's that going to motivate you to do? Move. <laughs> yeah. Get the heck out of there and go find some oxygen. <laughs> so that's what I mean by resources, food, water, air, like things evolutionarily that could mean life or death. Uh, the problem, as I mentioned, is our brain can't differentiate these true life or death resource situations uh, with the fact when I'm standing in line at Starbucks and I'm checking out, you know, back when you could stand in line at Starbucks, and normally you're looking at the food that's there in front of you. And, um, you know, they put like uh, the banana bread, right? And they've got like normally five or six slices of banana bread out there every time I walk by it, I can always resist it. Yet when there's only one slice of banana bread left out of the five or six slices that are usually there, it influences me to get it every single time. Because I'm thinking to myself, well, there's only one left. You know what? I'm, somebody else may want it. I may want it later and it'll be gone. Let me go ahead and grab it now. And I'm sitting there eating my banana bread, thinking to myself, you know what, this is probably not the last slice of banana bread they have in the store. <laughs> I bet they got a whole closet full of it, right? But it gets me every time. So our brain can't tell the difference between a life or death resource versus any resource. But suddenly, if it's running out or dwindling, it motivates us to want it more and to do more to get it. All righty. Nice intro. Let's, uh, let's go granular here and just take a little bit of a deeper dive. 
uh, Chris. So uh, what's the difference between uh, persuasion and, say, coercion, i.e., forcing people to do things or telling them to do things? What's the difference there? That's a great question. And it all comes down to one thing, choice. Did they have a choice in the matter? And did they have the freedom to choose? So when you coerce, when you intimidate, it's like you're putting a gun to somebody's head, right? You're forcing them to do it. If it's your boss, uh, someone who's in charge of you, in authority, if you will, telling you to do stuff, uh, a police officer, whoever that is, again, it's like a gun to your head. You don't really feel like you have a choice in that matter. So you comply because there's a threat. Uh, the difference here is when you truly influence and persuade someone, it's all about choice. Okay, you're not forcing them to do anything. You're not telling them to do anything. They're choosing it every step of the way. Okay, so the old adage I give is, uh, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And I think many of us have heard that, that saying before, but it really hits home to what's this difference of influence and persuasion versus coercion is. So what's the cat, right? It's this threat, it's this force. So when the threat's there, people, the behavior stays true. The mice will do what they're supposed to. But as soon as the threat is gone, right, the force is gone, what do the mice do? They play, they go back to a different behavior. Versus when you truly influence and persuade someone because they chose it every step of the way, okay, the behavior doesn't change. Whether the, the, the cat's away, the mice don't play at all. So when you influence and persuade by definition, you, the recipient, receive a message. You hear it, you see it, you read it. You receive this message in some format. And because of the message itself, that changed your perspective on that matter. And your change of that perspective that moment changes your thinking about that thing in that moment, which then leads to a change in your behavior. Again, nobody told you to change your thinking. Nobody forced you to change your thinking. It was all up to you. And that's how you got influenced and persuaded. So we can really differentiate those two when it comes down to choice. In one, you have a choice. In the other scenarios, you don't. Excellent. Chris, so how do you know if you've uh, actually influenced or persuaded someone versus micromanaging them, uh, i.e. tell them to do it or put a gun to their head and tell them to do it? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a great video I show in my persuasion workshop where this woman comes in to a, what she thinks is a, for a free eye exam. So she's coming to an optometry clinic and she's going to sit in the waiting room like she's supposed to. And we've all learned if you're in a medical office setting, you know, you sit in the reception area until somebody calls you back. But in this reception area, they do things a little differently. So there's like six or seven people in this reception area. And about every minute to two minutes while they're in the reception area, a loud beep comes over this intercom, like a beep. And right on the beep, everyone in the reception area stands up and they sit back down. And you watch this woman looking at everybody the first time like, what is going on? And then the second beep comes, beep. Everybody stands up and they sit back down. And again, she's looking around like all freaked out, like, what are these people doing? And then the third beep comes. Boop. And what do you think she does? Of course. Stands up. Social proof, right? The evidence of what others are doing, she stands up on the beep. And, she, and they do this several times to reinforce it. But what was interesting in Tessa's idea of the difference of coercion and uh, intimidation and force versus persuasion and influence is they started taking everybody away. So everybody got called back for their appointment. So she was literally sitting in this reception area, totally by herself. The front desk person was gone. So there was nobody around, no threat, no force, if you will. And the beep came. And what do you think happened? She stood up on the beep. Okay. So the behavior continued, even though there was no evidence of the behavior around her. 
Why? Because she chose to change her perspective and thinking on what needed to happen. There was no sign that said she had to stand up on the beep. Nobody told her that when she checked in. She chose to change her thinking about what happens. And her thinking was now normally in a reception area, we sit down until we're called back. But I guess in this reception area, we stand up on the beep <laughs> until we're called back. Okay. So it's a great example of when you're truly influenced and persuaded, your behavior doesn't change. It stays true. Chris, let's uh, change lanes here and talk about uh, changing, uh, using this technology, the, this knowledge to uh, decrease, say, no-shows, increasing referrals, getting more people to pay today, uh, et cetera. Uh, how do we apply these applications to dentistry effectively? Yeah, well, it comes from, you know, first starting with the challenge in mind and then trying to reverse engineer from there. Like, you have to know what do you want to ask for? Because, you know, to influence and persuade, it's all about asking people questions, okay? We, we're asking for a yes for something. So we have to be very clear on what that is. And then we have to back it up and make sure that we're giving people you know, choices along the way. So, for instance, let's say I want to give, I want to get more Google reviews, so to speak. Because especially right now in a, in a post-COVID world, we want to show patients who are afraid of coming in that it's not crickets in our office. We want to use social proof and show them we're busy. And I want to get reviews from those patients coming in right now to share with those who aren't coming in to make them feel more comfortable. So one of the things we can do is when a patient has a great experience, okay, we can leverage reciprocity. So I usually give them a choice of gift cards, like little $5 gift cards to thank them for being my patient and for coming in today. And I let them choose one of the four gift cards for them, whether it be Starbucks, Target, iTunes, Amazon, you know, you can kind of choose, but I want it to be something that they're going to value and have significance for them. And when they choose one and genuinely thank us for it, we know we've created a moment of power that we could ask for something in that moment. So we ask for a, for them to do a review, but then I got one to give them a choice when they say, sure, I'll do that review for you. I ask them a simple question. Great. When you go to do that review, are you going to do it on your phone or are you going to do it on a computer or a laptop? So I want them to make a commitment and, and choose, right? When you go to do it, how are you going to do it? And if they say their phone, I'll say, great. Well, would you prefer, can I send you a text or can I send you an email? Again, I'm giving them another choice. Oh, I'll, you know, an email or a text, text would be great. Oh, fantastic. Then I'm going to send you a text alert. Okay. Oh, and by the way, here's something for you to take with you. It's step-by-step -step instructions on how to do that review with your phone, right? And there's pictures, for every step. So I had literally people screenshot every step of the way. So they had uh, written instructions and picture instructions on how to do it. So for my elderly patients, if you will, uh, they wouldn't get hung up on how to do this thing. But I give that to them as a reminder of the commitment that they made that they said they were going to get the review done for me. So when they put that little piece of paper on their kitchen counter that night and it sits there for a couple of nights and they haven't done the review, every time they see it, it's another reminder. They said they'd do that review for me. Right. So that's just an example of how we can use two principles, consistency and with reciprocity to set the stage for a yes for what I wanted the most, which in this case was to get more Google reviews. It's brilliant. I love it. Uh, let's talk about increasing case acceptance. That's something that we all are interested in. Very hot topic today. We're trying to regenerate our practices. What are the two biggest challenges dentists are facing and why are they struggling so much? Yeah, I think the big challenge right now is we, they don't really understand who they're competing against for case acceptance and for more patient treatment. You know, most of us, and many times I think we make the mistake of thinking we're competing with our fellow dentists, our fellow colleagues, like the dentist across the street from you is your competition. 
Uh, when in fact, I feel I'm more of an abundance mindset thinker. I feel like there's more than enough patience and work for all of us to be satisfied and do well. Uh, but we are competing against something and we're competing against what our patients are spending their money on. All right, which is not their dental care. And we know if you look at the average consumer debt right now, the people are spending their money on something, but they're spending it on what they want. Okay. And, and unfortunately, what are we presenting to them? Not what they want, but what they need. And so in the battle of need versus want, typically, unless it's life or death, okay, want wins out every time. So part of our challenge is not understanding that we need to try to reframe people's perspective and make this dental need now a dental want. Because if they want it, and if they choose to want it, now they're more likely than ever to find a way to get it done now. So Chris, how do we do that? That's an interesting uh, point. How do we do that? How do we get them to go from need to want? Yes. So first it comes, you got to understand like, what are the reasons why people say no to us? Number one. Okay. And going back to what we alluded to earlier, you know, uh, if you really understand why people say yes and why they say no, and we make our strategies around that, then we're going to have a much better outcome from the start. So here are the top five reasons why people say no to us. Because uh, if we don't satisfy that, we have no chance for a yes in the case acceptance bit and making this a, a want. So the first one is an easy one. Are they in the right mindset? Okay. And with mindset, it's all about, you know, who you are in the moment you're making that decision. And whether you realize it or not, your patients are coming into your office with a mindset pre-established. The question is, does that mindset work with what you're going to be talking about when it comes to their dental treatment and their needs, or is it working against what you're going to be talking about? Is it going to be competing with what you're going to be talking about? And most of the time it's competing. So if we don't have them in the right mindset, we tend to lose and it sets the stage for a no instead of a yes. Uh, we drop the ball on the relationship. Okay. Cause again, we like to do business with people we like. So if they don't know us or like us, we don't have a good relationship with them. We're not likely to get a yes. Okay. So maybe we haven't spent the time to foster that relationship. Uh, a lot of dentists make this mistake. There could be some uncertainty present. What does that mean? Well, if people are uncertain, if there's any kind of questions or doubt in their mind, they don't move. They do not say yes. And so it goes back to this paradox of choice. I don't know if you've read that book or heard about that book uh, from, I think it was uh, Mr. Schwartz, uh, but it kind of goes like this. Number one, people need a choice. They need at least two options or they didn't really make a commitment, okay? But the challenge is the more options we give them, the more things we put in front of them, the less likely they are to pick any of them because they literally lose the ability to tell the difference. And if they can't tell the difference between your options, if they're uncertain, they don't say yes. So many times I see docs make the mistake of giving the patient two, three, sometimes four options, and then thinking that the financial team is gonna come in and help them figure out which of those four options is gonna work. The problem is the financial team is going to come in and present three options financially for each of those four treatment options you gave. So now the patient's literally got 12 things they're trying to decide on <laughs> and what's going to fit in their budget. And what tips to happen when they have that many things to think about, they're unsure and they don't move. Okay. So we got to be very careful about that. But if we, if we've left too much uncertainty on the table, they don't say yes. And the fourth one here is motivation. Uh, this is what's been motivating patients to come back in today more recently is that uh, this reactive mindset. Okay. These people who thought they had time, okay. You know, it doesn't hurt today. I'll get to it at some point. And lo and behold, when it, the time came when it was hurting and they couldn't get into our offices because we were shut down or what have you, it's really motivated them to get in when, when they can now and move forward treatment. So if we don't figure out ways to motivate action with people, okay, they don't say yes. 
And ultimately, all four of these things lead up to the fifth and final reasons why people say no to you. It's what did we give them to compare and contrast in the moment to make that decision? Because people are using, I call it this, the contrast scales, like the yes, no scales. So in the moment they go to make the call, they're comparing everything that's been in front of them leading up to and in that moment to make the decision. So if we took more time to build a relationship, right, decrease the uncertainty, increase motivation, get them in the right mindset, automatically we've got more things on the yes side of the scales. So it doesn't have to be about the money. If we didn't work on those things successfully, then they only have one thing left to judge us by, which is our price. And usually the way we present that price, we're not anchoring them to something else first. So typically when we let them control our price to the things they're spending their money on in their life, we tend to lose. So it's retraining our focus on that, right? Giving them more things to weigh down the yes side of the scales and set the stage for a yes. And that's what we can do by giving them a choice every step of the way. Okay. They're more committed than ever by choosing this and wanting it instead of it being a need in their mind. Excellent. I love it. Let's talk about mindset. Uh, Dr. Cialdini talks about that in his newest book, Persuasion. What does it mean, Chris? And uh, how do we get that into our equation here of what we've just been talking about? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, mindset is all about who you are and the moment you're going to make your decision. But who you are is really about where you are in the moments leading up to and the moment you make that decision. So it's about where you are um, physically, it's like the sights, the sounds, the smells in your environment around you. Okay. So imagine the difference of walking into a dental office and it has that traditional for the first time and it has that traditional dental smell. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone's ever quantified what exactly that dental smell is. I think, you know, is it IRM and fixer and developer and maybe profi paste? I don't know. But we all know what that dental smell is versus if you walk into a dental office that smells like fresh baked chocolate chip cookies, like your mother or grandmother used to make growing up. Uh, automatically, a mindset's going to get created because of that smell, whatever smell you had, a positive one or a negative one. So it's about the environment in which we're exposed to in the moments we lead up to our decision. It's about where we are cognitively, meaning what are your thoughts dwelling on? right? If your thoughts are all positive, then you're going to be more in a positive mindset versus are your thoughts dwelling on more negative things? Then you're going to be in a more negative mindset when you make your decisions. And lastly, it's where you are emotionally in that moment as well. So, you know, the example I like to give is, you know, picture a new patient coming to your practice for the first time. Uh, she's outside uh, in the parking lot. She got there 30 minutes early because you said she had to fill out paperwork, what have you. And she just gets off the phone with her husband after having a knockdown drag out fight like tears, could be a divorce coming, who knows, okay? It's not good. But she knows her, it's time for her appointment, so she cleans herself up, tries to dry away the tears, comes in, has a good experience in your practice. You know, maybe it wasn't great, maybe it's not the worst experience, but a good one. And here we come in talking about her dental needs, right? Where do you think her mind is right now? Is it here with you at all on her oral health? Probably not, right? Where is it? It's still in the car, stuck on that fight. So it's about where we are emotionally in these moments as well. So the environment in which we're exposed to, what we're thinking about and how we're feeling, all these things influence our mindset and the decisions that we're going to make in that moment as a result. Chris, uh, let's talk about applying some of these concepts uh, from a business and revenue growth perspective for dental practices, I know you have a system you call the TIME system. I'd like you to talk about that. 
Yeah, so that's our system for persuasion, right? How do we, uh, persuasion is all about creating mindsets. So by definition, there's a distinction between persuasion and persuasion. Persuasion is when the person is in front of us, right? And it's, it's, it's looking and searching for what principles of persuasion are available for us in that moment when that person's in front of us to tap into, to set the stage for a yes to what we're gonna ask them. But persuasion is actually something different, right? This is something where we can create an ideal mindset a mindset from somebody uh, that what mindset they're in makes them more receptive to the requests we're going to make them when they finally are in front of us. So Dr. Cialdini describes it as priming the pump for a yes before they ever get in front of us because they're already in the right frame of mind as a result. So, and, that, and that's really what persuasion is all about. And so, you know, kind of a good example of that is it, we use this time acronym to create persuasion to create the ideal mindset in the person's mind. And it comes from the first T of this, this acronym time is targeting the mindset we want, right? So you have to understand what you want to ask for, what you want a yes to, then you back it up and think to yourself, what mindset would a person be in that sets the stage that they're more likely to say yes to the requests I'm going to make. Okay. So like for case acceptance, right? You know, I want patients to move forward with treatment today and be more proactive in their mindset instead of being reactive and letting things get worse because they did nothing today. So I know the targeted in the mindset I want to create is I want my patients to be more of a proactive mindset, right? That's someone who's going to be more likely to be, to say yes when I say, why don't we move forward with the treatment today versus letting it go, right? And getting, and continue to get worse and worse and worse, costing more time, money, and pain down the road. Now we know the mindset we targeted, we can go to identifying the triggers to create that mindset. So there's all kinds of things that create mindsets. Mindsets are fickle little things, uh, but there's a couple we can kind of dial into. Uh, again, the environment in which we're in can, can create mindsets. As I said, those sights, sounds, smells, like the fresh baked cookies can trigger a mindset for family and, and reduce the ease and the uncertainty in a new patient's mind who walks through that door for the first time and smell something that reminds them of home or growing up, right? Um, you've got the questions we can ask, trigger mindsets. And believe it or not, pictures, images that we have in our office uh, can create mindsets, right? So we want maybe focusing on pictures uh, that not just of uh, random things or, or stupid pieces of art that don't mean anything, but we can be more strategic in the images that patients are exposed to in our practice to create these things. But I kind of use language and asking people questions in a persuasive way uh, to trigger that mindset. So if I want them to be in a proactive or reactive mindset and I got to give them a choice, what I've decided to do is back it up. And that's one of the first questions I ask them in my new patient questionnaire. Okay. So the next part M is all about move. Where are we going to move this trigger to have the most benefit? So I move my question and I want to create this mindset as early as possible. So I put it in my new patient form. So it's already getting in this mindset before they ever get in front of me. And I ask them a simple question. When it comes to your oral health, which do you prefer? Do you prefer to be reactive? Someone who will let things go, who will let things worsen over time. If it isn't broke, don't fix it, so to speak. Even though it might cost you more time, money, and pain by waiting. Or do you prefer to be proactive? Someone who doesn't want things to get worse, who'd rather tackle it today before it costs you more time, money, and pain by waiting, right? And I let them choose right from the beginning. So I can move this with this M part of time to the proper place to have the most influence before the person gets in front of me and create that mindset. And then of course, there's the E, which is all about extending the mindset. 
So if today is not the time to ask the person something, uh, but I want to remind them of something that they've done and recreate this mindset at a later date, how do I extend that moment, so to speak? How do I extend it? So I do that and use this a lot, like say for your hygiene recall. Because when somebody makes an appointment today for six months from now, I mean, obviously a lot can happen to them in six months. And they may or may not remember this commitment that they made to even show up to this thing. So we do some little things like make them fill out their own appointment card so they're more committed to it. And then we mail it to them, right? Even though, yes, we still use all the same automated mediums, uh, I still want to send them a physical reminder and something in their own handwriting that shows that they knew they had an appointment this day and time. And on that appointment card reminder, I ask them a simple question. Will you please call us if you can't make it? And we make them answer the question, yes or no, on the postcard before they leave. So that person in five months, we're going to extend that mindset and this commitment that they're going to show when they pull it out of the mailbox and see, oh, I have an appointment on this day and time. Oh, wait. Oh, crap. I did tell them I'd call. Okay. I guess if I can't make it, I either better show up or at least I better call them and let them know. Right? So we can remind people of the, the commitments they've made and extend that mindset down the road. So time is really about just an acronym on how we can create mindsets in a persuasive way. I like that. Uh, Chris, we're getting down to, down to the end here, but I want to ask you just maybe one or two more questions. Let me go back to the case acceptance uh, area. What yeah. are uh, you know, the main areas we need to get a yes? Because we all are looking for that today. Our practices are down, and we want to give people needed and valued dentistry. So how do we get to yes? Yeah, so first and foremost, remember, whatever you want to talk about, you can't start with that. <laughs> you got to anchor them to something else first. <laughs> and the reason is this, because whatever you throw at someone, whatever price you give them to start with, they're always going to compare it to something because that's, that's how we make decisions. We use contrast. We compare what's in front of us. The danger comes is when you let them control what they compare it to. So example, let's say they need a crown. Okay. We've told them they need a crown and our financial team comes in and says, Mrs. Jones, you need a crown as the doctor said, and that's $1,200. Well, the first thing the patient's thinking is they're comparing that number to something in their life. And they're thinking, holy cow, man, my, that's more than my house payment. That's more than my car payment. And in five seconds, they've, they've mentally shut you down. The door to yes is closed. They're like, I can't afford that. But you'll never hear it. You'll never see it from them. They just kind of like the, they're the penguins of Madagascar, right? They just smile and wave, boys, smile and wave. And they just kind of nod at you and just try to get out of there as fast as possible. And what we get in return is, well, let me check with my husband. Let me check with my calendar and I'll call you back. Okay. Well, and the problem there was you let them control the comparison. Instead, what I like to do is use the principle of scarcity and anchor them to something else first. So when I tell them, you know, they need a crown, the conversation starts like this. I try to picture in my mind, what's going to happen if they don't move forward with this treatment today? Okay. Is there some ethical consequence of what's going to happen? And is there going to be a cost to them down the road because they didn't move forward? And I picture it, whatever the timeline, six months later, a year, five years, you know, I leave the timeline up to you, but I'll play it out. So I know if they got decay and they fractured tooth structures and they need a crown today, that's probably not going to get better as time goes on. If they did nothing, it's probably going to end up being a root canal. Okay. So my presentation goes like this. I show them the evidence and justify the treatment they need. Here's the x-ray. Here's the internal camera photo. Here's the problem. And you got two options. Option one is you can do nothing, but here's what's going to happen. That decay is going to keep on trucking. It's going to get to the center of the tooth. Two bacteria turn into four, four turn into eight, eight turn into 16. Next thing you know, you're going to have a rampant infection going on in that tooth. It's going to kill the nerve, and then it's going to escape into the body. And that's really when the pain wave is probably going to come for most people. And it's going to cost you more time off of work. 
to fix. And we're gonna have to do a root canal, a buildup and a crown down that road. And we're looking at around $3,600 to fix it. But the good news is we're not there yet. If we get to it today, option two is we can do this crown. And it's significantly less. And we could probably start it today. Let me get my financial team to come in to go over that data with you. Any questions? Okay, good. And my financial team comes in and just repeats what I had just said. Hey, Dr. Phelps said, if you did nothing, here's what you're looking at. The root canal built up in a crown for 3,600 bucks. But if we get to it today, it's only a crown and that's only 1,200 bucks. And actually after your insurance pays its part, it's only 800. Does that work for you? Now, how does $800 when you actually tell them their out-of-pocket portion sound compared to 3,600 in contrast? Sounds a lot better, right? So now the door to a yes is open. When we anchor them to the 3,600, they're thinking they can't afford that. Whatever that first number is, they're gonna think they can't afford it. <laughs> it's out of perspective. But what we show them is, well, that's okay because you're not there yet. Here's where we're at today and it's significantly less. And in comparison, that contrast, suddenly at least now the door to a yes, the possibility of it is open. Still not a guarantee, but again, all we're trying to do is set the stage for a yes, right? None of this is guarantees, but I just wanna give people the best chance that everyone leaves in better oral health than when they came in. Okay. And if they leave doing nothing, then we have failed in that endeavor. Absolutely. Chris, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I've taken about two pages of notes here uh, <laughs> while we've been talking to bring back to the team next week. Uh, I know that you mentioned here that you've got some worksheets to share with our members. Uh, can you talk, tell us about this and uh, how our members might reach you, reach out to you? Yeah, yeah. So if anybody's interested, I'm happy to share my Influence New Patient Questionnaire. Uh, that persuasively starts getting those mindsets created, the proactive, reactive kind of things. It kind of helps you identify what people value uh, because it's going to be important to know what they value instead of guessing at what they value. But they have to choose it. They have to take a stand and let you know what kind of patient are they going to be in your practice? What do they believe in, so to speak? Uh, I have a treatment plan presentation sheet uh, that I can share with you, and it's how I structure my presentations. Whether there's two options, do nothing or a crown, versus if they have multiple options. Do nothing, do the whole mouth of treatment, half the mouth, a quadrant, single tooth. Uh, you know, regardless of the treatment size, it doesn't matter. The structure, the, the bones of the, of the presentation are the same. And it's kind of a worksheet that you can flow to try to, so you can start learning how to present your treatment as well, okay? And then of course, I've got a financial worksheet uh, that starts out with that scarcity anchor of how much things cost if they did nothing and what that treatment's gonna be. And then it helps the team prepare and have the numbers ready to take them down the price stairs, to use contrast to your advantage to make that number seem less and less and less, which means more people say yes and leave moving forward with the treatment that they now have chosen and want. Now in my persuasion workshops, you know, obviously I spend two whole days covering these topics and going through these worksheets and making sure you and your team know how to really dive into these things and use them effectively. Uh, but everybody can start and have more influence. I mean, just implementing that new patient form in offices before I've even done the training, I've noticed from them and their reports that they've noticed a significant increase in case acceptance just by asking the proactive reactive question and doing nothing else. So that's the good news. You can, you can start practicing with these things and start having more influence tomorrow. That sounds great. What's the best way for the members to reach you? Yeah, so probably the easiest way is just email me at chris, C-H-R-I-S, at drphelpshelps.com, uh, chris at drphelpshelps.com. And mention you heard this podcast and uh, you like those forms and I'm happy to send them to you.
That's very generous of you. Chris, thanks for your time today. I know how busy you are. I've been trying to, you're a moving target. I've been trying to nail you down for a day for a couple of years right now. I really enjoyed this. I mean, personally as a member uh, and, uh, and as a host, and I really appreciate your time today and sharing. Thank you, Wes. Take care.